Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The conference finals are in full swing. Not necessarily a surprise in the Opening round or the opening game of the Western Conference Final with a high-scoring affair, Colorado knocking off Edmonton, and then a bit of a surprise with New York handing Tampa a fairly one-sided defeat in the first game of the Eastern Conference Final. We'll get into that and how these teams compare to your Vancouver Canucks, the second podcast of the week, second Vancast of the week. Thomas Drantz, what do you make of those first two games, my friend? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's... The Colorado-Edmonton game was really high scoring, obviously, but I I do think the goaltending played a big role in that. To me, on actual form, that was more like a 5-2 game, or sorry, like a 5-4 game, excuse me. Um, The Oilers were able to cut the lead late, but I thought even in the third period, when when you go back and watch the balance of chances that the Avs were able to generate on the counterattack. I mean, I I thought they were materially better, and yet, you know, McDavid's still McDavid, and and McDavid won the head-to-head matchup in the 12 minutes that he played against Nathan McKinnon, and, you know, the the Avs are going to be in tough, particularly with the news that Darcy Kemper will not play in Game 2. So the Oilers, uh, you know, they're going to have a real shot here. Like, I do think that if the series looks like that, with a ton of offense and a ton of goals, the Avs clearly are going to have the edge. They could score at will uh, in game one. I think they'll be able to continue to do that. But I also think you risk, you know, in a series with a ton of oxygen, uh, giving, you know, a, a little bit of space. Like a, a, it certainly gives a chance to the team with the guy who's uh, who employs the player that, you know, <laughs> like has the highest lung capacity. And that's obviously McDavid. So that was one's interesting to me. The Rangers, um, you know, incredible. The voodoo continues. Um, Rangers took over that game in the third. They were full value. Or sorry, in the second. They were full value in that game or in that period anyway. But on the whole, you know, I thought the Tampa Bay Lightning mostly looked like the Tampa Bay Lightning. Mostly looked like the superior side. And I thought Vasilevsky played really poorly. Like I thought that was a goalie win. For the Rangers, that the Tampa Bay Lightning were probably due to lose as a result of their goalie after beating the Panthers in four with a 980 save percentage while Bobrovsky was sub 900. This was sort of that script being flipped, and you know it's one game. 
I think the Avs have a lot of work to do if they're going to dust off the Edmonton Oilers. And I think the Rangers certainly have a lot of work to do uh, on a similar vein if they're going to beat the Tampa Bay Lightning. Um, you know, I'm old enough to remember the first round when the Leafs won the first game in, you know, 5 nothing, And Vasilevsky looked eminently beatable. And we know what came next, Farhan. And you're still celebrating as far as I know. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't celebrate Edmonton wins. Just so you know. Hey, no, you know, I'm in. I'm at Toronto losses. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah, no, I am still celebrating. Absolutely. Uh, Pavel Frank, who's getting the start ahead of Kemper. Now, how big of a deal is this? And I say that because Kemper was the by far the weak link of Colorado's team. I mean, you, you know, when you look at their depth of forwards, their transition game, how good they are on the back end in every one of those areas, they are significantly better than Edmonton. But the equalizer was both teams had ordinary goaltending. And right. now Colorado still has ordinary goaltending. And Frank Hughes has had long runs uh, in the last couple of years where he's where he's carried the starter's load. So, you know, and he's certainly not established himself as a starter, but I don't know how much of a downgrade he is over Darcy Kemper. Um, I mean, he was this season. You know, the thing about Kemper is he he didn't play great in that blue series, but for the most part, he was fantastic. For the Avalanche over the course of the season, right? I mean, you're talking about a, a guy who had a 928 five on five save percentage. You're talking about a guy who was among the league leaders in uh, in the second half by goals saved above average. Um, he certainly outperformed Franco's in in that area. And yet, when you look at overall save percentage this season, you know you're looking at a 916 for Franco's and a 921 for Kemper. Uh, not a huge drop off. Francois was also above average in, in twenty in the twenty one games he played, um, but Kemper's goal saved above average numbers are certainly better. Uh, you know it is. It's not a you know it's not a huge downgrade. I don't think it dooms the Avalanche by any means, but uh, you know it's 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 something for the Oilers. Like it's certainly something that the Oilers can try to exploit here. Um, you know they can certainly score we know this um i think there's a chance that they could make avs goaltending a story and they're gonna have to like they're gonna have to if they're going to win this series and this comes back to one last point that i want to bring up because i am nothing if not stubborn as all hell and that is you know when i you know first of all i probably i very very probably as i wake up this morning realizing that Braden point is out of the tampa new york series and that Darcy Kemper, the Avs might be without their starter uh, against McDavid and the Oilers. I sort of, you know, begin to wonder if I have indeed, as one of my NHL contacts suggested to me, manifested a Rangers-Oilers-Stanley Cup final. Um, and, you know, the point of all of this is, it's possible. Sure, it's possible. There, there's, there's a chance. There's a real chance at this point that, you know, the Rangers win three more or that the Oilers battle back and win four of the next six. And so it goes. But the whole point of building an elite team is to give yourself some wiggle, right? Is to give yourself the baseline to overcome injuries and bad luck and, you know, all of the things that can happen over a long run. You need to be able to control play well enough that your goalie can have an off night and you can still win. You need to be able to control play well enough that you can lose a player uh, and still and still have something to fall back on in, in trying to win games. And so, you know, the Tampa Bay Lightning are good and deep enough 
to overcome Braden Point's absence, right? I don't think the Rangers would be able to overcome a similar injury, let's say Panarin or Zibanejad, right? I don't think the Oilers could overcome a lo- the loss of one of those top three forwards right now, right? I mean, they need every inch of those guys. Um, similarly, if the Oilers were down to Miko Koskinen for sure, and, and I don't know that Miko Koskinen is significantly worse than Mike Smith, but, um, you know, I don't think the Oilers or the Rangers could afford to lose their starter. Um, you know, realistically, I don't think Tampa could either just because of how important Vasilevsky is to what they do. But Colorado feels to me like the one team in the final four. Um, well, Colorado and I suppose Edmonton, I think, could both lose their starter and, and basically continue to play at the same form. And that's sort of what we're talking about or what I'm talking about anyway, when I talk about favoring the higher quality, the deeper teams, the elite teams, in my view. Yeah, I and certainly thought co- we'll see certainly- the concept of it here. I certainly thought Koskinen was better. I mean, there were some five-alarm saves he made in the third period that kept Edmonton yeah. hanging around so that they could get that game within a goal. They're, so, they're comparable pieces. They're comparable pieces. I don't think there's a huge edge to Mike Smith, to which, be totally honest with you. I'll ask you one more question about this game, then I want to get into the Canucks, and then after the break, we can we can also get into the, the Eastern Conference Final. But both coaches, as you would expect, after a high-scoring game like this, 14 goals in the first game, said, you know, we don't like how we played defensively and we can't get into that kind of game and, you know, like bullshit, right? Both those coaches, both those teams know this is how they play, right? They mm. don't play based on tight defense. They play based on elite offense. And certainly Colorado's defense is better, but it's their transition game and how they play offensively that makes them better. So which coach tries to adjust more and coachify, meaning screw up entertaining <laughs> hockey, right? Like whether, is it going to be Bednar? Or is it going to be Woodcroft? Which one attempts to dumb the game down more and which one is more likely to have success doing so? Uh, a really good question. I, I mean, I think it's got to be Woodcroft for now because the abs have the edge and because a lot of what I think Bednar brought to the table worked for from an abs perspective, right? I mean, you're looking at uh, McDavid having played almost 80% of his ice time, excuse me, against Taves and the, the Devon Taves pair with Kale McCarr. And he only scored one goal in those 14 minutes. So that's, look, I mean, and he it wasn't McDavid's goal. I'm saying the Oilers scored one goal with McDavid on the ice at five on five when he was matched up against the Taves McCarr pair. That's really good, right? Like your goal, if you're the abs matching up with McDavid, isn't even to like play him to a draw, right? It's literally just like, don't let him set you on fire, right? Like just, just slow him down a bit. Just, uh, just limit the damage. Give your team an opportunity to win the game in other minutes. And they actually came out ahead in game one. Um, You know, I, I thought the way that the abs third line sort of had their way a bit with Edmonton's depth players. And, and I'm talking about Newhook with Burakovsky um, and Comfer, the way that they were able to attack against the grain, some of what they were able to generate. I thought that was clearly in the Avs' favor. And, you know, I think putting McKinnon with two of the best, like challenging McKinnon to go head-to-head with McDavid and putting him with, two of the, your best two-way wingers in Landeskog and Nachushkin, I thought that paid dividends for the Avs. Like, I thought, even though McDavid won that matchup technically, because he's Connor McDavid, 
I thought that was a good look for them in game one. Um, you know, and really the Letton and Ranton and Kadri line was was even more dangerous because they were freed up from that responsibility. I still wonder if down the line, if the if the Oilers are able to sort of punch back, I think we could see the abs be put in that boat. We could see Bednar be sort of forced to consider a, you know, Kadri, Lekkinen, Nichushkin type checking line uh, against McDavid, which would end up limiting McKinnon's minutes, right? That would be, that would be if the Oilers can turn, flip the script, right? This is on Woodcroft right now because a lot of what the Avs did worked. Woodcroft can put the shoe on the other foot, however, if he can get McDavid going again. If, if, the Oilers are going to win this series. I think you're going to have you're going to see them put Bednar in a position where he needs to consider his usage of Kadri completely differently, and with with knock on effects that limit McKinnon's five on five ice time. Right? If they can get the Abs to bend and hard match Kadri versus McDavid, that that becomes an advantage for Edmonton. But after Game One, I don't think there's any pressure on Bednar to make that shift. And as a result, my answer to your question is it's on Woodcroft right now. Yeah, and you wonder who's better off trying to do that. I mean, I think I think Colorado is capable of defending and playing that type of game if they need to. I'm not sure if Edmonton is without it really affecting their limited offensive pieces, right? Um, I think they could be. I think if I'm Jay Woodcroft, I might just want to go and take my chances that I can outscore them at some point, you know, whether it's because of the goaltending or just how well uh, their top forwards are playing. I, I think they'd be, I think they'd be better served to, to keep it going, right? Like to keep the heat on, but um, you know, it's generally the losing coach that makes the first adjustment. So I would imagine yep. Jay Woodcroft would go in that direction. So we'll see where it goes. Let's, uh, let's change gears a little bit. Um, the athletic, and again, on the back end of the show, we will get into the Rangers and enlightening a little bit more. The Athletic, led by our very good friend Thomas Strance right here, um, <laughs> did a comparison of where the Canucks are at based on the top four teams that are still remaining in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And look, we know that they're not even close, but based on Dom Lushizen's model, which is part of VanCast Bingo, uh, GSVA, game score value added, just where, they, where they're at in terms of different areas of the team, uh, you know, their not necessarily position by position or player by player, but who's your top forward versus their top forward or your top center, I should say, your top line winger, uh, your top six center, like just all of it in terms of slots was kind of the theory, if I'm getting it right, uh, having gone through this uh, just before we went to air here. And the Canucks have a long way to go. They do indeed. Um, But also, in some ways, show up decently well in comparison with, the, the elite, the teams still remaining in the hunt. You know, for example, one thing that all of these, that the average, so the average conference finalist, right? You can't think about the Avs, you can't think about the Oilers in this exercise. You have to think about the average of all four teams, right? So instead of it being McDavid McKinnon, you've got, you know, McDavid McKinnon point Panarin, right? Like, and what's the average of those players? And, and a comparable piece for Vancouver is JT Miller. How does he compare to the average of those players? And, and yeah, I mean, those players are the elite of the elite in the NHL. And McDavid and McKinnon's individual brilliance sort of inflates the quality of that very top-end spot, the top-line center spot, as we've called it within, within this piece. Uh, uh, you know, even beyond what you actually need 
for for a contender. And I, <laughs> I love mean, that those you put are... Miller at center and Pedersen on the wing. Well, we did it. We did it because we wanted to break down guys based on contract status or, sure. or cap hit in particular. So our first line's Miller, Pedersen, Besser, um, because those are you know it's basically the the center who played the most uh, minutes plus the two highest uh, the two. Uh, the second and third high or the first and second highest paid forwards on the team. Right. So that, that was sort of the, the way we did it. We filled it out with contract status as opposed to a projected lineup. Right. Anyway, when you think about it, the average conference finalist has four elite skaters uh, by GSVA. Right. And that's, you know, top 10 percentile. Well, the Canucks have four elite skaters by GSVA by, by percentile, right? Three forwards and a defenseman. That's actually a match. For the average con- for conference finalist, you can get bogged down in the fact that, you know, 4.5 GSVA, 3.8 GSVA for the average contenders, top two forwards, and Vancouver's are more at 3.1 and 2.7. But the fact is, is that in terms of like pieces, in terms of the number of pieces, even if the pieces are uh, of, of slightly lower quality in Vancouver at this point, um, the top end of Vancouver's roster actually shows up pretty well in this exercise, Right. I don't think that's a shocker, right? Like, we know that Quinn Hughes is special. We know that Elias Pettersson's excellent when he's on his game. We know that JT Miller's really, really good. We know that Connor Garland's an analytics darling. Um, But in terms of how Vancouver and and Demko, obviously Demko is, if not quite at Vasilevsky-Shesterkin level, he certainly would be the third best goaltender based on the form we saw this year in the conference finalist of the, in the conference final if the Canucks were there. At the top end of the roster, the Canucks actually show pretty well. It's a little bit further down that the bigger issues sort of emerge. The the we need an army tier where the Canucks begin to fade in terms of the quality of this roster as it's constructed versus those of the teams still playing for the Stanley Cup. Well, so let's uh, take a quick break. When we come back, we'll get into where those biggest problems lie right now and and get into this a little bit deeper. And then, as I mentioned, uh, we'll also get into the Eastern Final. So, Drencher, let's start with the bottom six forwards and certainly players that are on different trajectories, right? A lot was expected of Jason Dickinson, especially in this model, because he did cast himself favorably when the Canucks signed him, especially with what he did in Dallas. But certainly a season to forget for him. Vasily Podkolzin, a young player, tracking in a different direction but right now the numbers you know don't necessarily bear it out but when you look at that bottom six and as much as we thought even when Tyler Mott was here in Vancouver hey that bottom four that bottom line with with Lamico and Highmore looks great the numbers don't necessarily bear that out in terms of where they're at there yeah the fourth line is definitely one of those areas I I I almost would sort of like we went through and sort of picked four specific pieces where the Canucks need to make progress if, if you're going to compete with the elite in the NHL or the elite plus Edmonton and, and New York. Uh, but, you know, the, the one that I'd really identify as the biggest issue remains the bottom six centermen, particularly if you play Miller, Pedersen, Horvat in the top six, right? If you don't spread that out, um, then Vancouver's overall center depth beneath those three guys is certainly far from being contender quality, right? That, that There's a big gap between, you know, a, a, a Yuho Lamico as well as he played and congratulations to him on winning 
the World Championships in Finland in his home country. I'm sure he's had a time this week celebrating what's sure to be a highlight of his career. Uh, and obviously the Jason Dickinson thing just didn't work out, right? It just hasn't worked out for Vancouver or for Jason Dickinson. I think Dickinson's probably a totally fine player, uh, certainly better than what we saw last season, but for whatever reason, didn't fit on this roster last year. And Do you think they move him back to the middle or leave him on the wing? Or how much does that depend on Brandon Sutter, who was on a one-year deal anyway? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you solve a Jason Dickinson issue. And I won't be stunned if this ends up at a buyout or, or a trade, um, to be totally honest with you. Like, mm-hmm. sometimes it just doesn't work out for a guy. You know, like, sometimes it's just it's just not the right fit. It Nate just Schmidt? doesn't work out. Nate Schmidt? And, and Dickinson feels like one of those, uh, to me anyway. Uh, I don't know how you salvage it beyond playing him on the fourth line and, and really limiting the minutes and just waiting for the confidence to come back. Uh, I've seen Dickinson play well. I like the player. I think the defensive skill is real. I just, I, I can't see how he fits a vision of a bottom six group that's got more of an identity and that's faster and that brings that sandpaper or, uh, you know, I just, he, he doesn't, he doesn't it's interesting. Feel... It didn't. He didn't fit under either coach. No, he didn't. Well, and they tried to shoehorn him into so many opportunities when Boudreaux first came in, right? And it just didn't work. Like it really just didn't work. And again, I, I like the player. I like the person. I, I think Dickinson is better than he showed last season. I, I think it was a nightmare campaign. I think everything snowballed against him, and I think it almost became a self fulfilling prophecy. And I won't be stunned if he's far more effective next year. If he's in a different spot, I don't know if he's going to be able to be effective in Vancouver, though. And I suppose we'll see. Like, you know, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how that one turns out. But I don't have high hopes for for the Dickinson experiment in Vancouver. Now, to come back quickly to center depth, that's sort of a big issue. Now, it, also, if you play Miller, Pedersen, Horvat on different lines, then all of a sudden you're kind of two credible top six players away. Right? Like you still need the way that the way the GSVA measures it now, one thing the Canucks are short on is that they really only had five top six caliber contributors this past season in Garland, Horvat, Besser, Pedersen Miller. Top six still a relative strength of the team. You can like the chances of of a Pod Colson or a Hoaglander to level up enough to to fill in that gap uh for next season, perhaps. But the fact remains is that you know, they still need an additional top six caliber contributor to match up with the conference finalists. And if you move one of Pedersen Miller or um, Horvat onto your third line, then you need an additional top six quality. Like then you need two additional top six quality players. Um, and, and that's probably where the Canucks are going to be anyway. It, it provided that they trade one of these players who've been, you know, much discussed in this market as as we've approached both the trade deadline a few months ago and and now going into this offseason and so, you know, that's sort of where things get intractable. You're looking at a team that needs to add at least one and maybe more depending on how this offseason plays out. Uh top 6 top 6 caliber forwards. That's that's a top end piece. That's not a small addition, right? Uh an additional sort of an additional high-end third-line center type a penalty kill guy, a guy who can help you in the bottom six, then you need to level up your overall bottom six depth, uh, particularly on the fourth line. And then the defense is where it gets really crunchy here, Farhan, right? Like by GSVA anyway, the Canucks kind of have two top four caliber players. Um, 
in Hughes and Ekman Larson. And, you know, landing two additional defenders to flesh out that defense core, um, you know, that's going to be really, really hard. It's going to be really, really hard to do, particularly in the short term. Like, I don't think you can accomplish that necessarily this offseason. Uh, you, you know, maybe you hope that Travis Dermott can level up. Maybe you hope that T- Tucker Pullman um, can level up uh, and get healthy. Uh, certainly you hope that Tyler Myers in the last bat- two years of his deal can, you know, look more like he did for a 30-game stretch under Boudreaux, the first 30 games under Boudreaux, than the rest of his NHL career. But that seems like a whopping, whopping bet, right? I mean, the fact is, is that in limited minutes, Tyler Myers can help you win, but you, you probably need those to be very limited. Uh, there's no easy answers here. There's no easy answers for the Canucks along the blue line. It's going to be very difficult to build this blue line group into the type of group capable of winning you games deep into the season. Yeah, and you know when you look at Ekman Larson, um, it was a good season for him, right? And and there were times when he was playing with an injury, and you wonder whether or not that's gonna like was what we saw this past year the high watermark for Ekman Larson in Vancouver, right? Like you you don't know where he's gonna fit on this particular model a year from now, right? And you don't know where he's going to be health-wise a year from now because that did affect him at various times. And you can say that for any player, but it's even more pressing when you're an older player. So uh, it, it is a, it, it's a fine line. There's no question. And then when you bring in a guy like um, uh, Rathbone that we all expect to get a, a real opportunity next year to play, you know, you can't expect him all of a sudden to be a top four quality player at this stage of his career. He's going to be a bottom pairing guy when he gets brought in. And yeah, you, you wonder from the outside... Um, I know that uh, there were some articles written of late about possible offer sheet targets for this team to potentially fix some of these holes immediately, right? Without having to get overly creative. You see that as a real possibility under this management team because it never was under the last one. No, and I mean, I can't, I don't know that Jim Rutherford has ever signed a player to an offer sheet. But Patrick Alvin may want to. For sure. Um, and we'll see. And Patrick Alvin, of course, um, you know, is the GM. Um, but I'm saying, like, Rutherford... Ah, okay, so, sorry. Rutherford did sign Sergei Fedorov oh, yeah. to an offer sheet That's in right. 1998. So, um, so I had that a little bit wrong. Rutherford Rutherford signed an offer sheet over, uh, over 25... Oh, 25 years ago. Rutherford signed Fedorov to an incentive-laden... Pre-salary cap now, so Pre-salary cap. But still, that's a ballsy move at the time. Like, that was yeah. big news, I remember now. Yeah. So. What are you, three um, at that time? What do you mean you remember now? Well, I was, I was, I wasn't three. I was nine. Oh, okay. So I was old enough to be like, oh my God, Fedorov, he's going to leave. <laughs> you know, I was old enough for that. Okay. So, um, yeah, the thing with offer sheets is I wouldn't expect the team to do it. Uh, the, be, they're so hard to get right. You know, like it's it's hard to actually land the player, right? Was Kotkaniemi the first guy to move teams via the offer sheet device since um, Dustin Penner? He was, right? I mean, wow, yeah, Dustin Penner. We got to go back even farther for that. Yeah. So you know, it's I don't have a conceptual issue with them. They're just not used well. I, I still think if I still think if no team offer sheeted Eric Cernak in in the summer of 2020 with a flat cap. Um, we'll never see one. Like that was the most obvious offer sheet of my life. Yeah, you and just fact, played that out for sure. 
yeah, the fact that no one did that, I think sort of speaks volumes. You know, e even last year, like the one that I was suggesting last year internally, and, and I believe James Myrtle ended up writing this idea in a, in a piece on offer sheet targets, but I had this idea last year that someone should go to the Avs, right? Or sorry, sorry, should go to the Lightning and offer sheet Alex Bure Boulet, um, you know, for like an amount that's like a million one, 1.1 million, right? Because the Avs can't, or sorry, the Lightning can't afford to have guys take up that type of space on their cap sheet and you can land the player with zero compensation, right? There's no compensation if you go out and sign an offer sheet to that type of uh, contract. And my, my theory was if you go and do that and the Avs match, or the, sorry, I keep saying the Avs, and the Lightning match, um, then that's fine. You move on and you do Ross Colton, right? Like you like, just like go up the, oh, go up the chain until you finally pick a player off or you compromise and you compromise their cap circumstance in the meantime, right? Like one of the main reasons I have zero sympathy for anyone complaining about how the, uh, Tampa Bay lightning used LTI is no one put any pressure on them and they were able to get Cernak done at under 3 million, which is ridiculous. Sergeyev done it under 5 million, which is ridiculous. And Anthony Sorelli done it under 5 million, which is ridiculous. Like the other and other NHL GMs with their passivity have allowed the Tampa Bay Lightning to fit this team under the cap. Like it's no one else's fault, but everyone else who's managing a team in the league. There is a device where you could have put stress on them. And in any rational league, that would have happened. And no one did it. And so I, I can't get worked up over anyone being like, oh, their use of the cap is really unfair. It's like, well, you could have put your foot down. You could have put your finger on the scale. You could have stressed out your opponent. And instead, you know, you're, you're all backslapping and don't do it. So I don't have a ton of sympathy for that line of argument. I certainly think uh, the offer sheet device can be used efficiently. I don't think it is in the league. I think because of the way that it's set up, everyone's so scared of it. It's so controversial. Uh, you end up. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's it, almost it, it's almost become part of the code. <laughs> you know uh, what I mean? Has, it's totally part of the code. It's and insane. It in in fact, if I was a player, I'd be furious about it. Yeah, like this got negotiated in good faith, and nobody wants to use it based on a gentleman's agreement, right? Like it's just crazy. I, well, and I, I I mean, there's a legal term for that, and it's collusion. Collusion, absolutely. And so uh, you know, I, I mean, I, if I was a player, I'd be furious. If I was. Um, the Tampa Bay Lightning, I'd be laughing. And I do think there's a ton of opportunities. Like, there's a ton of ways to go about stressing out various teams, um, you know, by by sort of picking at the bottom end of their roster, even, even for no compensation type guys. You know, you think about a Ryan McLeod who's played really well for the Oilers um, at, in, in a bottom six center role. Like, you know, wh why why allow the Oilers to grind this guy for two months when they're in your conference and they have their own cap issues looming when you could just go out and, you know, offer sheet them at one five and the, yeah, but and is, the it, comps is it like a worth third round it? pick. Is it worth it? Because you know, there's going to be some retribution because that's how stupid this league works. Right? So is it worth doing for a fringe player? If you're going to make that move for an Eric Chernak, who's going to be a top four defenseman for you. Sure. Yeah. That's one thing, but I don't know. And, and I understand what you're saying to be able to do without compensation in terms of the legal mechanisms around the tool or the device, but in terms of how other GMs are going to react, 
there's there could be a bigger price to pay. So if I'm going to do that, I'm going to do it for a much higher end player. Well, but yeah, I mean, and and fair enough. But I also think, like, who cares if someone comes at you? And I mean, what are they? Who are they going to? Who are they going to sign anyway? Your RFA's this year, Brock Besser. So so what? They got to come in. No, and, but it'll affect you later, right? Like this year, you're not going to feel that price, but you you will down the road. Yeah, maybe, maybe you will. But you know, try and get deals done early. Like you got to keep guys on side. I just think I just think in a world where in a world where it became commonplace, the retribution would cease. No question. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but it'll take like, it'll like, take a while to get there. It'll it, it will there's gonna have to be some collateral damage along the way. And I don't know that you want to be that based on a bottom of the roster signing. Yeah. But so at, but as we let's transition from that topic back to the Eastern Conference final, because you know, you reference Tampa Bay a lot and how they've been able to get away with this. I mean, you know, you look at JT Miller and how Vancouver got him. Vancouver paid market value. Right. Like, so, and, and Tampa Bay has been able to continue to have success based on that. Um, Tampa Bay's third line was so good for them a year ago. You know, when Mm. you look at, when you look at that group with, um, with Yanni Gord and, uh, and Barkley Goodrow and um, uh, Blake Blake Coleman, Coleman, Blake Coleman, and none of them are there. And now you look at New York's third line, which is a very young group. Right, yep. you've got Heidel who got a couple of goals last night, Capocacco and Alexi Lafreniere, uh, who's the top pick in the draft. That line proved to be a difference maker, and you know, yes, Vasilevsky wasn't good, but in the argument of rest versus rust, whether it's for the goaltender or the rest of your forwards, that young, fresh third line with a lot of legs for New York made me raise my eyebrows to think, boy, this might be more than just a team that was able to thrive on third string goaltenders for their opposition. Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, I, I'm like, they're a good team. I don't see them as an elite team because I reserve that for the teams that I rate as the top seven in the league. Um, but I think they're a good team that had a really good deadline, right? And right after the deadline, and we talked about it a lot in this market because they made so many acquisitions without paying the significant acquisition cost that it would have taken to land a JT Miller. But, you know, cop. Vetrano, Vetrano was like for a third. Mott was for a third. Uh, both have been really good fits. Added a lot of speed to that group. Deepened their group overall. And then Cop was what for a second and a conditional pick. Um, I mean that was a really good low value trade for a guy who's you know probably top six caliber in terms of his skill level, but also play center and has that high high work rate. Right, the the type of playoff work rate that everyone wants. So, you know, I think they raised their floor and and deepened their roster really successfully without paying a premium price at the deadline. And I think a lot has fallen into place for them as a result. Um, They're a good team. I just don't see them as an elite team. And, you know, I still think they've got a lot of work to do to beat the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? Like this, this is far from over as good as they looked yesterday. And, and, you know, by underlying form, like I watched the first period really closely before heading off to the Seas game, um, which I saw last night and was a ton of fun. Um, and so I watched the first period really closely and I was like, oh man, you know, this is this is the Shesterkin show. And I PVR'd the game and I came back and later watched, like when I got home, I watched the second and the third period. And aside from the 20 minutes in the second period where the Rangers really took over the game, I still saw a lot of the issues that I see when I typically watch the Rangers play, which is, you know, I, I just don't see them having the puck enough. I don't see them controlling play well enough. I see them getting burned off of things like um, set plays, off of draws, 
I see a lot of the same stuff I see when I watch the Canucks, to be honest with you, Farhan, where it's like they're winning, but I don't see them doing the things that will sustainably result in that. And that concerns me. You know, that that's not something I ever want to bet on. It looks to me like goaltending and good fortune as opposed to really sturdy hockey. So that that was how I saw that game last night. Um, not all of it live. And and we'll see how we'll see how it goes. Obviously, they've exceeded my expectations to this point. The Rangers and the Oilers are two teams that I have not picked to win a single round in this playoffs, and yet they're still standing. And in the Rangers' case, they have a series lead. Yeah, I mean, do you think how much of this do you think was rushed on the part of Tampa Bay? Because again, on form, I thought they did a lot of good things, or is it just rust for the goaltender? Yeah, I mean, I think certainly you'd imagine that this break could have taken Vasilevsky out of his rhythm, right? I, I mean, that makes sense. Like, he looked a lot worse than he did in that game one against Toronto. Did he? Yeah, I think so. I, he like, looked pretty bad. He looked pretty beatable in that game. There were there were at least two, maybe three goals that he absolutely needed to stop last night. Yeah. Um, you know, second I think, goal was bad, got a clean look. The fifth goal was bad, got a clean look. Um, yeah, and there was, a, there was at least one other in there that was... A bit of, was certainly a bit concerning, but again, I mean, it could be just rust. I, I I would just not bet against Vasilevsky. No, I wouldn't. I mean, Vasilevsky is going to have some games. You know that. You have to know that, right? And so, you know, we'll, we'll sort of see where this goes. I think. I think where you what worries me about the performance of the Heat line is how much of their success came against the Stamkos line. This that Stamkos group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it didn't look to me like the Rangers were hard matching particularly they were kind of just rolling a a fair bit and you know I look at this I look at last night's game as one where certainly the goaltending needed to be better for Tampa Bay and yet the fact that the Rangers didn't hard match for Tampa's top group and nonetheless was able to generate successfully with multiple lines against that Stamkos group, um, you know, that to me is really concerning, right? Because if you don't have to hard match those guys, if you don't have to hard match against them and you're able to, you're able to sort of punish a second line, the Tampa second line, then, then, you know, you're really in trouble. Now the Rangers did game plan more for Kucherov. Obviously that makes sense. Um, Kucherov got a healthy dose of of Cop and 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 company. Cop, Lindgren, Fox was really the the guys they came at Kucherov with, <coughs> and that's sort of where, you know, I think the Lightning showed better. Um, they they had Kucherov had a lot of zone time yesterday, right? It's just that the payoff wasn't there, despite the quality of the chances they were generating. That's that's the those are the minutes that I'm looking at and thinking Tampa Bay's if Tampa Bay's turning this around. They're going to start to score in those minutes. And that would be where I'd feel confident if I'm John Cooper today. And where I'd be concerned is I can't have Stamkos getting burned by both the Heidel line and that Vetrano, you know, uh, line as well. I, you know, I, I sort of need, I need, I need to at least be able to trust that they're going to come out even in that matchup. And they certainly didn't, um, you know, on, uh, in game in game one on Wednesday. Well, by the time we come back here again early next week, both these series will be 
right into it, if not over in one case. Uh, we've got game two coming up tonight, Wednesday. It is Colorado playing host to Edmonton, and they go back and forth on alternating days here. So it should be fun by the time we get back on Monday to see how these series have transpired. And, and how much I'm getting dunked on on Twitter. And how much <laughs> Thomas Trance is getting dunked on on Twitter. You know, And I picked Edmonton to win just to be a nice guy. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll my see friend. where that goes. We, nice uh, guys finished last, Farhan. I know. I know. When I, I often, <laughs> I often do. I often do. Hey, listen. If you're looking for other pod options, Doug Waite joined Sean Gentili and Craig Custance on the Tuesday edition of the Athletic Hockey Show. It'll be out later today on uh, Le Support Athletique. Arpon Basu and Marc Antoine Godin will feature interviews with three top prospects in the NHL draft: Shane Wright, Logan Cooley, and Juraj Slavkovsky. Slavkovsky, I should say. I got to get all these draft names right. Yeah, uh, we'll also get into we'll also get into some Canuck prospects and and what who they're looking at uh, for the draft in the coming days before we actually get to the draft later on this month or in the coming episodes, I should say. So that should be a lot of fun. Find out what the Canucks are going to do at number fifteen. In the meantime, thanks for listening to the Vancast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Do not forget to leave a rating and a review. Right now, you can get an annual subscription to the Athletic for just one dollar a month for six months when you visit theathletic.com slash vancast. I know it's only Wednesday, Drancer. I wish you a good weekend and we'll talk to you next week.